Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Age-related changes in the liver and significant increases in chronic health conditions such as obesity, hypertension, and diabetes heighten risk of diseases of the liver among older adults. While other treatments for liver diseases are possible, liver transplantation may also be an option among this population. My guest today is Dr. Rohit Satoskar, Director of Medical Services at MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute and also Medical Director of Liver Transplantation. He's going to talk about risk factors for liver diseases that occur among older adults. And he's also going to describe signs and symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment of these diseases, and what factors determine when transplantation is the best option. So welcome, Dr. Satoskar, and thank you for joining me today. Cheryl, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, I really always like to kind of set the stage for my interviews with a little bit of an anatomy and physiology lesson. So let's start with that. Talk about the liver. Where is it in the body? How big is it? What are its functions? The liver is the largest internal organ, and it resides within the abdomen. It's in the right upper abdomen, and the most, most of the liver is underneath the rib cage. The size of the liver is dependent on the size of the person. So larger people have larger livers. In adults, the liver weighs on average somewhere around three pounds. And the liver has multiple functions within the body. It's central to the metabolism of the body. The liver processes any nutrients or food that you may ingest. It also processes medications or other things that you may take in orally. The liver also plays a role in making major proteins within the body. So, for example, your blood's ability to clot when you get a cut is strongly based in your liver function because your liver makes the clotting factors that allow your body to perform that function. So the liver is a vital organ, and you cannot live without one. And to that point, then, do you see that liver function starts to decrease with age? So it's an interesting question. We, we actually do not see a decline in liver function with age. We do see decline in the function of other organs. So for example, we know that after a certain age, kidney function declines steadily. Uh, but the liver can continue to function um, throughout um, aging patients or aging people. Um, so we don't see a general decline in the liver function. Now, if there is underlying liver disease, that's a little bit of a different story. 
Okay, so the chronic liver disease, is is that something that's more prevalent in older adults? And I was wondering if that's associated with what I had said in the introduction about associated with obesity or hypertension or diabetes. Mm-hmm. So chronic liver disease is becoming more prevalent in general and more common. So if you look across the U.S., um, there are probably somewhere around four and a half to five million people that are diagnosed with liver disease. Now, that's only the people that are diagnosed, and there is probably a much larger uh, group of the population that has not yet been diagnosed. We know that, for example, up to 25% of people, it's estimated, may have underlying fatty liver in the U.S. So that's a huge proportion of the population. Um, there are about 45,000 deaths per year um, that are attributed to chronic liver disease and its complications also. So it is a big problem in the U.S. And I want to make sure that I didn't give misinformation. So is there an association between chronic liver disease and some of these other chronic health conditions that older adults are likely to have, uh, as I said earlier, like obesity or hypertension or diabetes? What would you tell us? There are. So one of the most common causes of chronic liver disease in the U.S. is fatty liver disease. And fatty liver disease is very closely linked to obesity diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And so we know that many older adults um, have some of these comorbidities, and as a result, they're at increased risk for chronic liver disease. And so those patients may suffer from fatty liver disease, and a proportion or a portion of patients with fatty liver disease will go on to develop more complications, such as cirrhosis, and then the associated problems with cirrhosis. And we're going to talk more about each of those diseases in a moment. But explain to us, what are the risk factors that might increase the likelihood of of liver disease among older adults? So there are probably two major modifiable risk factors that come to mind. So the first one we we had started to discuss, and that's obesity. Um, We know that fatty liver disease, which is one of the more common types of liver disease, is very closely linked to rates of obesity and obesity in individuals, um, as is diabetes. That is something that if we can avoid through lifestyle modification, uh, maintaining a healthy weight, exercising, uh, following a proper diet, you can reduce your likelihood of developing that liver disease. The other thing that's modifiable is alcohol intake. So we are seeing a rise in alcohol-related liver disease. We've seen a rise during the pandemic also. And that's also something that can be modifiable by drinking alcohol only in moderation or not drinking at all. You can reduce your likelihood of developing that liver disease. And is there a difference between risk factors and likely causes of liver diseases among older adults? I think they are slightly different. Um, there, there are various different causes of liver diseases in older adults. Um, and the risk factors are things that place p- patients at risk for developing specific liver diseases. So obesity and diabetes are linked to the fatty liver disease. Excessive alcohol intake is linked to alcohol-related liver disease, but there are other causes of liver diseases in older adults. Those include viral hepatitis, 
So it is recommended that all adults be screened for hepatitis C. And we do know that the so-called baby boomer population or those born between 1945 and 1965 are at a higher risk or have a higher prevalence of chronic hepatitis C. And so that's another liver disease that is currently treatable uh, and curable, uh, and we should screen all adults for it. So if a person does have liver disease, first of all, what are those signs and symptoms? And are the signs and symptoms similar because they're affecting this one organ or, or is there a variation amongst early signs and symptoms of liver disease? One of the challenges we have with liver disease is that in the early stages of liver disease, patients generally don't have symptoms. Um, and that's one of the challenges we have in terms of um, suspecting or finding liver disease in patients just based on history alone, is that there really may not be any symptoms. Um, some of the early signs and symptoms of liver disease may be fatigue, um, feeling tired, uh, but as we all know, we have many other reasons to have some of those symptoms. Uh, usually, uh, liver disease is picked up by a physician on routine testing, or if directed testing is done in someone that really has those risk factors and the physician suspects that there could be underlying liver disease. Okay, well, what I'd like to do is is just hear from you as to some of these specific liver diseases. Let, let's start with cirrhosis. Is, is that the most common liver disease among older adults? Cirrhosis is, is not the most common liver disease. So cirrhosis is a stage of liver disease. So of all the different types of liver disease that we discussed, the chronic liver diseases, so fatty liver disease, viral hepatitis, uh, to name a few that we've already discussed, those are diseases that can, over time, cause scar tissue or fibrosis within the liver. So all of those diseases cause inflammation in the liver, and that chronic inflammation over time can lead to scarring of the liver, which ultimately results in cirrhosis. So cirrhosis is a stage of liver disease that involves extensive scar tissue in the liver and a nodular appearance of the liver. And that can result from many different liver diseases. So in my profession, I see patients that have all different types of chronic liver disease. And over time, the end result of many of those, if they go untreated, is to develop cirrhosis of the liver. Once cirrhosis of the liver develops, then patients can develop additional symptoms. So there are some patients with cirrhosis of the liver who do not have symptoms. Um, they do not have complications from the cirrhosis, and they would fall into a category called compensated cirrhosis. There are also patients that then develop problems with liver function in the setting of cirrhosis, and those patients have what we call decompensated cirrhosis. And those patients sometimes can experience fluid retention in the legs and the abdomen, jaundice, problems with bleeding, or problems with confusion. But those generally occur sort of late in cirrhosis. And we're going to be talking about treatment a little bit later, so we're going to put that aside for a second. And go to hepatitis, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. And I think there are different types of hepatitis. And you also mentioned earlier that that is treatable and even pre preventable. So, but let's just, again, have you explain what is hepatitis? 
and how does it differ from cirrhosis? So, so the term hepatitis is, is a generic term that refers to liver inflammation. And so that, uh, that term alone doesn't really tell us the cause. So there is viral hepatitis. So that is liver inflammation that is caused by a virus. So the most common one that we know of is hepatitis C. Um, hepatitis B is also quite common worldwide. There are other forms of hepatitis also, though, such as autoimmune hepatitis, which is a condition in which the body creates an immune reaction where it attacks the liver. And there are other types of hepatitis that are associated with fatty liver disease, something called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So hepatitis is, is really more of a generic term that refers to liver inflammation. It's amazing how complicated this is in terms of having liver disease. There's so many different terms to, to be aware of. The third you had mentioned already about the fatty liver disease. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention there in terms of causes or symptoms or treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to highlight fatty liver disease because it, it is one of the most common causes of liver disease that we will see in the U.S., and as we had sort of mentioned before, it tracks very closely with the risk factors of obesity and diabetes. And so avoiding obesity is one way to avoid development of fatty liver disease. The other thing that can compound the issue of fatty liver disease, though, is excess alcohol intake. And so we know that excessive alcohol intake can also result in fat deposition in the liver and ultimately lead to, to long-term problems with the liver. So moderating your alcohol use or avoiding alcohol altogether is advised to try to prevent that. And we're going to be saying that over and over again during this program, <laughs> I'm sure. So the fourth condition that our listeners should be familiar with is liver cancer. And are the causes and symptoms of that condition as it relates to the liver different than what we've already been talking about? And, and, and again, let's, we can talk about the treatment as well. Mm -hmm. So liver cancer is an important um, topic to discuss. Uh, we see a fair amount of liver cancer, unfortunately, and it's estimated that somewhere around 42,000 will be diagnosed with liver cancer um, in the U.S. this year. And unfortunately, um, the rates and death rates due to liver cancer are increasing, and they've been increasing over time. The most common risk factor for developing liver cancer is underlying cirrhosis of the liver. So you can see that all of these things that we're discussing are, are linked, um, that these underlying chronic inflammatory processes within the liver can lead to cirrhosis, which then can place patients at risk for liver cancer. And much like early liver disease can be without symptoms, one of the challenges we have is that early liver cancer can also be present without any signs or symptoms. And so patients that we see that may be at risk for liver cancer, such as those with cirrhosis, we, we do screening tests to look for the presence of liver cancer. So usually that, that entails imaging every six months. Now, while that sounds 
quite dismal and that um, I mentioned that the, the rates of liver cancer are fairly high and are increasing. The, the good news is, is that our treatments for liver cancer have significantly improved over time. And if we can diagnose patients early, liver cancer can be curable. So there are various treatment options for liver cancer. Some are surgical, so some patients with liver cancer can have the cancerous portion of the liver removed. Some patients are candidates for liver transplant, and that can provide a long-term benefit for patients and cure them of liver cancer. And for patients that have advanced disease, there have been significant improvements over time in, in terms of the chemotherapeutic regimens we have available. And I want to now talk a little bit about how liver diseases are diagnosed, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. You're saying there's a significant increase in the prevalence of liver cancer. I'm curious, is it more amongst men than women? Or is there certain races where you're seeing it more? What are you seeing in terms of maybe breaking it down a little bit in terms of older adults? And, and what, why? Why is there more of an increase? The, the increase is primarily driven by the continued prevalence of underlying liver disease. So because cirrhosis is, is present in about 80% of patients that develop liver cancer, and we're continuing to see increases in chronic liver disease, I think that's primarily what is driving um, these rates of liver cancer over time. And so, you know, until we can really get a handle on these underlying chronic liver diseases, including fatty liver and viral hepatitis through various screening regimens and management of risk factors, um, we're going to continue to see this, I believe. And are you seeing it more in men or women or certain races? What would you tell us? Not necessarily. I think we're seeing increases across the board. Really? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis. If sometimes people don't have symptoms, but maybe they do, as I said, it's it's really a little uncertain. What is the process for diagnosing liver diseases? What what exams and procedures um, do you conduct? Laboratory testing is probably very central um, to initially identifying someone that might have liver disease. So it's often that patients will have their liver enzymes checked by their physician for various reasons or as part of a routine physical. Um, and it may be found that they have some abnormalities in their liver enzymes. Once that is found, and if it persists, uh, usually we would under, undergo additional evaluation to determine the cause of it. And so we might do additional laboratory testing to look and see if there's viral hepatitis we may order radiologic studies, such as an ultrasound of the abdomen to look at the liver to see if there are changes in its appearance, to see if there is fatty deposition in the liver, um, and sometimes more advanced uh, imaging studies, such as a CT scan or an MRI may be indicated. And you mentioned about laboratory tests. Now, is that blood work or is it more something that's more complicated or more involved. Yes, thank you for that. I apologize. I wasn't clear, but um, but blood work generally. So so generally on routine blood work, um, we can perform what are sort of known as liver function tests. So so the term liver function tests is is generally used uh, to refer to a group of tests that 
that not only look at liver function, but can also detect if there's some underlying liver inflammation. And those can be routinely run on, on a blood sample uh, to determine sort of not only are there signs of inflammation within the liver, but also if the liver is performing its job properly. And so these are the, the liver function tests then, and what you just described, that helps you make the determination then of whether someone has a healthy liver or a not so healthy liver. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Okay. So you've talked about these uh, tests already. Help us also understand why and how does a physician examine the liver? I mean, can you actually do something with a person lying down or describe kind of what the process is? And then kind of taking that one step further after you've done the liver function test, is there also a possibility that there might be a need for a liver biopsy? I'm kind of just trying to take this step by step as to what process you follow. Sure. So a physician can examine your liver. As we mentioned early on, the the liver resides within the right upper abdomen. Um, most of the liver is is under the the rib cage, um, but by lying a patient down and by palpating or pressing on the the right upper quadrant in the abdomen, um, you can feel the liver and determine if it's enlarged. Um, in some settings, we might be able to feel an abnormal contour to the liver. Um, we can also detect on the abdominal exam sometimes if there are certain complications related to the liver, such as fluid retention within the abdomen. And we may do that by, by palpating or pushing on the abdomen or by percussing, by tapping on the abdomen to determine if there are changes in the sound of the abdomen. There are certain circumstances under which um, a liver biopsy may be necessary also. Um, in most situations, as we're trying to determine if there is underlying liver disease and the extent of the underlying liver disease, we generally start with less invasive measures such as blood work, um, physical exam, imaging studies. Um, but in some circumstances, we do do a liver biopsy which entails getting a very small piece of the liver for analysis under the microscope and sometimes doing special stains on it. And that can help us determine a couple things. One, it can help us sometimes diagnose the underlying liver disease if it's not apparent after the other tests have been completed. And two, it can help us develop a prognosis by determining how advanced the liver disease is. So we had mentioned that many liver diseases over time can cause inflammation, scarring, or fibrosis in the liver, and ultimately cirrhosis. And the liver biopsy is one way of determining how much of that fibrosis may be present. We have other methods to do that too. There are some non-invasive methods, but liver biopsy is currently considered the gold standard for that. Okay. Well, we're talking right now with Dr. Rohit Satoskar, the Director of Medical Services at MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute. He's also the Medical Director of Liver Transplantation. Just wanted to let folks know in case you tuned in late. And uh, we're going to take this short break right now. And we are listening to this program on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. 
aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. Today we're learning about liver diseases, and we're going to be learning about liver transplantation in the second half of this program. And we're talking with Dr. Rohit Satoskar, Director of Medical Services at MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute. He's also the Medical Director of Liver Transplantation. So Dr. Satoskar, we've kind of led you up to the next step in uh, what happens with a patient. We talked about symptoms and risk factors and different types of liver diseases and diagnosis. So we really want to spend the second half of the program on treatments. So give us an overview. What are the different types of treatments for liver disease? And when is surgery needed? Is it always needed? Help us understand that. Sure. Um, so first of all, surgery is not always needed. Um, surgery is occasionally needed. Um, but, you know, the treatments for liver disease sort of depend on a couple different things. Uh, first, it depends on the cause of the underlying liver disease. So, for example, patients that have liver disease that is from viral hepatitis would be treated very differently from patients that have liver disease from fatty liver versus patients that have liver disease from alcohol use versus patients that have liver disease from an autoimmune condition. So we would treat the underlying cause of the liver disease if it's known. So for patients that have chronic viral hepatitis, if they have hepatitis C, we now have oral medications that are taken that can cure the disease in the majority of patients. For patients that have underlying viral hepatitis B, we have very good oral medications now that are taken once a day that can suppress the virus and reduce the risk of complications down the line. For patients that have autoimmune conditions that are relating to liver disease or causing liver disease, we may treat that with certain immunosuppressive medications or steroids to try to dampen the immune response. So that's one way that we treat liver diseases. It's really by treating the underlying cause. In the case of fatty liver disease, we try to modify the risk factors. So we try to help patients lose weight. Um, we try to help patients um, follow a reasonable, well-balanced diet. We try to help patients um, engage in exercise regimens. For patients that have liver disease that are related to that is related to alcohol, um, we encourage abstinence from alcohol and and try to set up a solution where patients can have long-term success with that. So, so. For the treatment of liver disease, it really depends on the underlying cause. Now, for some patients that have more advanced liver disease, for patients that may develop cirrhosis as a result of their liver disease, and if they develop complications, or what we mentioned were decompensations related to that liver disease, then they may need surgery. So that's when we start to think about things like liver transplantation. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more later. Uh, but to mention, you, you did bring up surgery. The other aspect where surgery may be indicated is for certain patients that have liver tumors or liver cancer. Um, those can sometimes be treated surgically by removing the cancer. 
And you mentioned already about the kinds of treatments to avoid or prevent complications down the way. Are there other complications of liver disease, say, not only that would affect the liver, but maybe other uh, organs in the body too? I mean, just was, was curious to know if it, it can really be widespread in, in a lot of different ways. There are, and and you know, most of these complications we see in patients that have very advanced liver disease. So these are m- mainly in patients that have cirrhosis of the liver and then go into that additional or sort of more severe stage of what we call decompensated cirrhosis. So when when some of those things develop, um, such as fluid retention in the abdomen and the legs, jaundice, problems with blood clotting and bleeding. Um, or confusion, um, that's a suggestion that the liver disease is really quite advanced. And when liver disease gets that advanced, other organ systems can get affected also. Um, So there are conditions um, such as renal failure that can be associated with very advanced liver disease. Um, There are also some respiratory complications that we may see in patients that have very advanced liver disease. And is that then that you would decide that this might be the need for a a transplant? Or I'm trying to get at the angle of the transplant evaluation process. And I was wondering whether it's because of the nature of the disease itself, or is it because the complications have occurred so much that a transplant is, is necessary? Yeah, well, I, th- I, th- I think that's exactly right, Gerald. That's, that is what we look at. Um, when we think about liver transplantation, we look at the risk-benefit profile of doing a liver transplant in any given patient. So there are many different indications for liver transplantation, but that's, that tenet sort of holds for all of them, that we want to make sure that the patient is going to have a good long-term outcome and that, that on a very basic level, that they're going to be much better off from a health perspective and a quality of life perspective after transplant than they are before transplant. Um, the different types of liver disease that we that we conduct liver transplant for are the the probably the most common cause is is for liver transplant evaluation is cirrhosis or decompensated cirrhosis so it's patients that have underlying chronic liver disease it could be really one of the many different liver diseases we've already touched on but they've reached that stage where their disease is severe and they've had these complications associated with it and generally those complications without transplant are associated with a higher risk of death. And so in those patients, many of them will benefit in the long term from liver transplant. There are certain cancers of the liver also where transplant is a good option in terms of increasing longevity and improving quality of life. So liver cancers such as hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a primary cancer of the liver, There are certain other types of liver cancer where liver transplant may be an option. There are certain metabolic conditions, too, where patients may undergo a liver transplant evaluation where it's deemed that they may get a better long-term benefit from liver transplant. And then there are certain acute liver diseases, too. So we've, we've mostly been talking about chronic liver disease, but there are some patients that suffer severe acute liver disease who may require liver transplantation also. 
And as you conduct the evaluation to determine whether this is a good candidate for a transplant, describe what is the process? Are there different types of healthcare providers that are involved in making this evaluation and and who is in charge of deciding what aspect to know and be aware of and share with the patient? What does that look like? It's a very good question. So Liver transplantation is a big step, um, and and it's a life-changing step for many patients, liver transplant is. Because of that, um, it's something that um, we do a very careful evaluation for, um, and the evaluation is really aimed at understanding that risk-benefit profile. And so we want to do not only a medical evaluation, um, but also to make sure that patients have adequate support. To, to receive long-term benefit from liver transplant. Because of that, we have various different healthcare providers that um, help give input into the decision. And of course, the patient also gives input into the decision. So the patient is part of this team. And the different healthcare providers would be physicians. So there are medical liver specialists or hepatologists like myself who play a role. The transplant surgeon who would actually be doing the transplant surgery plays a role. So they evaluate the patient from a surgical perspective uh, to make sure that technically the surgery can be done and that we can limit the risk of complications. A nutritionist would be involved to help educate the patient and help guide them in terms of maintaining their best nutrition leading up to the liver transplant surgery. A nurse coordinator will help guide the patient through the process. An anesthesiologist would see the patient to go over the potential risks of anesthesia and surgery and to help us understand any kind of heart or lung risks or complications that potentially could occur. Patients also see a social worker um, to make sure that uh, patients understand the types of support they may require after liver transplant. So it really is quite um, a comprehensive evaluation, and not any one person on the team makes the decision as to whether the patient will ultimately be placed on a liver transplant list. Um, That is a decision that is made together. Um, We meet as a committee. Um, and try to determine what would be in the patient's best interest. And how would the family and uh, the caregiver, uh, how, how are they involved in this decision-making process? So they're involved all along the way. Um, you know, one of the first steps is to talk with the patient um, and their family, if the patient desires, about the option of liver transplant. Um, and they play an active role from that point forward in in sort of deciding the next steps. Um, Some patients may decide that they do not want to have a liver transplant evaluation. Um, Many will want to go ahead and and begin the evaluation and go through that process. But, you know, we keep the patients and families kind of involved throughout the entire process. And after you've evaluated all these different factors, do you find that there are sometimes decisions that would make you decide it's it's not a good idea, that the idea of a liver transplant would be contraindicated? What might be examples? 
Yeah. So th- there are situations um, where that is the case. And, um, you know, the, the field of liver transplant has really evolved over time. And things that were sort of once considered an absolute contraindication, you know, may no longer be an absolute contraindication. So one example of that is um, probably a couple decades ago, um, any type of, of malignancy or cancer um, that was present sort of not within the liver, but another cancer that was present within the, the last five, the, the five years prior to when the patient was getting evaluated might have excluded them from being evaluated for transplant. Um, we now do consider patients that have had more recent malignancies um, and on rare occasions, even patients that have um, sort of active extrahepatic or outside the liver malignancies. I think the key in any individual situation is really trying to determine what that risk benefit is. So again, our goal, and I believe most patients' goals, is that they, they receive the best long-term benefit that they can and the best quality of life after transplant. And so we look at each of those factors really sort of um, individually to determine that. Now, there are some situations in which it it may be more apparent that the patient isn't going to have a long-term benefit from something like liver transplant. And that may be a situation where someone has very severe heart disease, for example, where the risk of, of the surgery itself is so high that we think there's unlikely to be long-term benefit. So in a situation like that, if those risk factors can't be mitigated somehow, um, we may decide that liver transplant is not the best choice. The other part of this is to hear about the actual liver transplant itself? Is it always done the same way? And as part of that, like, is it a whole liver? Is it a part of a liver? So it it would be interesting to hear about that. But it would also be helpful to understand about the donor. Is there certain requirements of the person who is donating the liver? Are there different types of donors? Explain that part to us as well. So, so there are different ways that a, that a liver transplant can be performed. The most common way that a liver transplant is performed is via a deceased donor or someone else that has passed away but has um, elected to be an organ donor. And that's how most liver transplants in the U.S. Um, occur is via deceased donor. And in most cases there, we would transplant a whole liver. So the patient's diseased liver would be removed and a whole liver would go in to replace it. Now, one of the remarkable things about the liver is that a healthy liver can regenerate. And so in someone that has a healthy liver, we can remove a portion of their liver and the liver will regenerate. That allows us to do living donor liver transplant in selected cases, where we identify someone that is otherwise healthy and doesn't have underlying liver disease. Often they're related or, or very close to the potential recipient, and we can remove a part of the liver from a living donor and transplant that into someone that has a sick liver or who is in need of liver transplant. The 
amazing thing here is that the liver not only regrows in the donor, but will regrow in the recipient. And so that is another way that liver transplant can be performed. And one of the challenges we see over time is that there is there are always more patients waiting for liver transplant than the number of donors that are available. And so if we can increase the, the availability of donors in any way, including living donor, that is a way that we can save more lives. And is it possible that the person the, you're mentioning that it's usually a deceased person, I would assume that the, the liver would have to be healthy, but maybe they had some other kind of disease. Does that make a difference? I mean, I'm just curious as to whether the donor is evaluated in a certain way to make sure that there is a good fit, as it were, between the donor and the, the, the recipient. Absolutely. So, um, so you know, li- living donor, of course, um, gives us um, w- one of the benefits of living donor is that it's more of a scheduled surgery. So, you know, we have time to evaluate the donor extensively. In the in the case of deceased donor, though, we also have multiple layers of information um, about the donor. So often we have sort of not only history about the donor, um, we would have extensive blood testing um, to look for other underlying problems. We often have imaging, um, and we many times even have a liver biopsy. So Deceased donors also are evaluated um, very closely um, to try to determine and and to make sure that that transplant is as safe as possible. And involved in this process, the role of the United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS, is that also an integral part of this whole process of of donor-recipient kind of activity, transplant? Mm Mm-hmm. So UNOS does play a key role. And as you mentioned, UNOS is the United Network for Organ Sharing. And UNOS is a private nonprofit organization. Um, They currently hold the federal government contract uh, to administer what is called the OPTN. And the OPTN is the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. Um, So this is the network that, that all transplant centers are a part of. And what UNOS does is they oversee the methodology that's used uh, to match organs um, from potential donors uh, to recipients. Uh, though UNOS does not directly determine who gets the organ or who is on the wait list, um, that is determined by the transplant center. Okay. And, and so each hospital has a direct relationship then with UNOS. Is that correct? That's correct. Every transplant center would. Okay. Okay. What I'd like to do now is talk about what happens after transplant surgery. Uh, the, the stay, how long does the recipient stay in the hospital? What is the recovery period like? What do you prescribe as to how this person is going to live with this new liver? Mm-hmm. This is really the amazing part of liver transplant is that unfortunately before liver transplantation, many patients are quite ill and they don't feel well. And liver transplant for the majority of patients is transformative. 
It uh, not only can lengthen life for patients, but it can improve their quality of life. And that occurs relatively quickly, um, given how long many of these patients had been sick prior to transplant. So within the hospital, in terms of once the surgery occurs, the average length of stay is somewhere around 10 to 12 days. And after that, uh, patients are discharged from the hospital. Um, many patients um, will go home after that um, with their loved ones um, and then come back to see us in the clinic. Um, they will be able to walk out of the hospital. Um, there are some patients, if they're more sick before the liver transplant surgery, that they may need to go to an acute rehabilitation center to, to get stronger for a short period of time. Um, a lot of that depends on how ill the patient is going into the transplant surgery. But over time, I would say the vast majority of patients, um, by three months um, and by six months for sure, um, patients are generally feeling pretty good. Um, and they're, they're, they're back to a good quality of life. Um, and they're back to doing, you know, many of the things that they want to get back to doing. Um, and part of the reason why they had the transplant surgery. So, you know, I have had patients that, um, go back to running marathons within a year of their transplant surgery. Um, I've had, I've had actually, I've had a physician that received a liver transplant who has gone back to seeing patients uh, within a couple months of liver transplant surgery. Um, so we see, you know, there's, there, there's some variation um, on the recovery period, but, you know, really our goal with liver transplant surgery is to return patients um, to their lives and get them back to doing what they want to do, get them back to enjoying their time with their loved ones. And will they have to take certain medications to, uh, you often hear about transplant patients having to take certain medications to avoid rejection of the, of the new organ. Is that the case for liver transplant? So that is the case, that there, there are medications that need to be taken long-term um, after organ transplant and after liver transplant. So, you know, one of the, the, the sort of um, underlying aspects of our immune system is that our bodies are built to try to reject anything that the body does not see as itself. And that works to our benefit in many situations. So, for example, if you get an infection your body recognizes that that substance that is causing the infection or that pathogen is not self, and it attempts to reject it, so it fights it off. The same thing can happen with organ transplant. So when we transplant an organ that is not self, um, unless we use immunosuppressive medications to suppress the immune response, um, the body may reject that organ. Now, one of the things we've developed over time is our immunosuppressive medications that are very effective at this. So the medications that we use post-transplant help modulate the immune system in a way that the body does not reject the liver. So these days, rejection of the liver, while it may occur, is not all that common and generally is, is treatable. 
The challenge may be, though, that these medications do have to be taken long-term or lifelong in most patients. There's a very small number of patients after liver transplantation that after a long period of, of having their transplanted liver may be able to come off of liver transplant or, or immunosuppressive medications, but that's very few and they are difficult to identify. So in general, most patients need to have these medications long-term. The types of medications that are used generally Early after liver transplant, we would use either two or three different immunosuppressive medications. Um, one of those is a steroid or prednisone. And over time, the amount of immunosuppression that a patient requires decreases. So the most immunosuppression is used up front, and that's where the highest risk of rejection is. That's why we do that. But over time, patients usually get down to a single immunosuppressive medication. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end. And throughout this program, you have been mentioning several times about preventing liver disease and what uh, individuals can do. But talk a little bit again, why, why is alcohol abstinence important? Are there certain medications that should be avoided? We talked a little bit about weight reduction. Give us kind of an overview of what you tell your patients to avoid liver disease in the first place? I think the first thing is, is to try to maintain a healthy weight. And that's where all of us, I think, should be um, exercising, um, watching what we eat, um, to try to maintain that healthy weight. That's one thing you can do um, to try to prevent the development of fatty liver disease or fat deposition in the liver. The, the second thing, as you mentioned, Cheryl, is avoiding excessive alcohol use. And, you know, alcohol use is something that's quite prevalent in our society. And, you know, we've seen increases in alcohol use, I think, during the pandemic also. Um, and avoiding excessive alcohol use is, is really a way to reduce the risk of, of developing progressive liver disease. In terms of medications, um, there are are not necessarily medications that I would say need to be avoided. You should always discuss uh, the risk benefit of using any medication, you know, with your physician, depending on your your clinical situation. Uh, but one thing I would caution about is uh, certain herbal medications uh, can sometimes cause problems with the liver, um, and medications that are that are herbal in nature. Um, may not be well regulated. And so if you're considering taking certain herbal medications, uh, I would encourage you to talk to your doctor about that and determine if they're, they're appropriate for you to take or whether there would be any interactions with anything else you're taking. Okay. One other uh, question I wanted to hear from you is about vaccinations. And I think that it tends to uh, be more associated with hepatitis and you're feedback would be helpful. I also was wondering whether there is any other concern for any other type of, of immunization that older adults might have that could be linked in any way to liver disease. So there are, there are two forms of hepatitis um, that are preventable um, by vaccination. Um, and so th that's hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Hepatitis A is a foodborne illness. And so you 
could potentially contract that if you if you ingest food um, that is contaminated with hepatitis A, and that is preventable with a vaccine. And so, so older adults, if they have not been vaccinated for hepatitis A, should talk to their doctor about being considered for that. The, the other is hepatitis B. So hepatitis B is also preventable um, via vaccination. And currently, um, most children are vaccinated for hepatitis B, um, but older adults may not have been vaccinated for hepatitis B. Now, hepatitis B is transmitted uh, in a different manner than hepatitis A is, and it's generally transmitted sexually or through blood-to-blood -blood contact. Um, and so depending on those things, um, some people may be at higher or lower risk, but that is another type of hepatitis that is, is really preventable by vaccination. All right. Well, final question. Any resources that you would recommend that people or listeners can learn more about in, in terms of liver disease or liver transplantation? An important question, because as you know, there's a, there's a lot of information available to us at all times now at our fingertips. There, there are probably a couple um, reputable sites that I would recommend. Um, one is uh, through the National Library of Medicine, uh, medlineplus.gov will have information about liver diseases. Uh, you can learn more about cirrhosis, learn about some of the chronic liver diseases that we discussed. And then the American Liver Foundation also has very good um, patient-friendly educational materials should you want to learn more. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rohit Satoskar, Director of Medical Services at MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute, and also the Medical Director of Liver Transplantation, for joining me today. Also, if you would like to learn more about Aging Matters, visit our website. That's agingmattersonline.com. And there you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as the podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and more information about that company can be found at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com.